Wrath is coming upon this world. It is God's wrath, his holy wrath. That, by the way, is how you can tell the difference between a true church and a false church. A true church will tell you what I just said. It will not placate the desires of people saying, everything's fine between you and God. No, wrath is coming upon this world, and it is holy wrath. Why do you think we need a Savior? Why do you think a Savior was born in Bethlehem if everything was fine between God and men? It is not fine between you and God, um, unless you have a protective cover, unless you have safety, unless you have a Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. People today laugh when they think about that idea of wrath. What, a, what an ancient idea. Why would we ever think God is a God of wrath? Because he says he is. They won't laugh when the wrath comes upon them because they will not be able to escape the wrath of God. They will be caught up in the torrents of God's fury, and it will be a just wrath against their own sin, of which God keeps records. When that wrath comes upon them, they will be without excuse because they were warned and they did not heed the warning. Let me ask you, aren't you glad you are saved? Yes. Yes. I sure am. I don't want to face the wrath of God. How good it is that we had good news preached to us. How is it that that good news about Jesus the Savior reached our ears and that we got saved? We're celebrating Christmas. Christmas we're celebrating about a child that was born a king. You know the carols. They say it in all the shopping centers, right? Hark the herald angels sing glory to who? The newborn king. He's a king. But Jesus was a Jewish king. It's what it says, Noel, Noel, born is the king of Israel, right? Jesus came to his own people at his birth. Where's Bethlehem? It's in Israel. Where's Nazareth? It's in Israel. He came to his own people to save the Jews. In Luke 1, our scripture reading to Mary, the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, a Jewish king, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, the Jewish kingdom, forever. Jesus was sent to save the Jewish people. I looked it up, though. 99.75% of the population of this world is not Jewish. 99.75%. of us are Gentiles. How is it that we got saved? How did the precious Jewish gospel spill over and get to us? Well, today we're going to get to see. God's sovereign hand opened the door to the Gentile world. That's what we're going to see today. To the vast majority of the rest of us in the world, the Gentiles, so that we could be saved. The Bible passage is Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1, if you open there. And we're going to read it as we move through it, since it's a long passage. We're going to do Acts 10, 1 through 33. We'll probably get about halfway through this morning. As we read, I would like you to keep this one truth in mind as it unfolds. I want you to be thinking about this one thing. And that is that God works sovereignly to move the gospel where he wants it to go. Here we can see God works sovereignly to move the gospel to the Gentiles. Why did he want that? So that the Gentiles would be saved. 
But I want you to see that the sovereign hand of God working to open doors, to move the gospel where he would want the gospel to go so that people would get saved. And in the uh, verses 1 through 33, you're going to see that God uses five scenes here, five unfolding scenes to kind of explain that. And so we're going to start with scene number one. First scene is the vision that is given to Cornelius. The first scene is the vision that is given to Cornelius, and that's verses one through eight. Now, even before we get into that, the key man that I want you to focus on that God chose to work through, and we're going to learn about this guy today in these verses, he's the key guy that God chose to sort of break the Jew and Gentile barrier is really an unsung hero of the Bible, someone we don't know as much about, but someone we should, and his name is Cornelius. And I tell you, Cornelius just doesn't get enough attention because of this major, major movement of the gospel through his household. He truly was a special man. So now I want you to focus on verses 1 and 2. And it says there, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. We'll stop there. This is fascinating how God worked. While there is nothing special about the name Cornelius, actually it was a common name at that time, the man that God chose to work through was no run-of-the-mill kind of a guy. In fact, Luke provides three main identifiers to describe Cornelius. The first identifier is his home was in Caesarea. You see that. This is a city, the remains of which are still there in Israel. In fact, when we were in Israel, we got to go there and walk around, take some pictures of some of the things that remained. It was indeed a Roman city. It was built with a fabulous man-made port extending into the Mediterranean Sea. It had aqueducts. It had bathhouses. You name it. Uh, one write-up of the ancient city describes Caesarea this way. Massive breakwaters gave safe anchorage to 300 ships. A sewage system was flushed by the tide, and a vast hippodrome seated more than 20,000 people at chariot races. Later, an amphitheater was built to present chariot races, gladiatorial combats, animal performances, and theatrical events. Little wonder that Caesarea has been dubbed the Vegas of the Mediterranean. So that was the ancient days. Quite a city for that day. And it's kind of good to get a little bit of a picture of that in our minds. And it's important for understanding what was God doing here. And here's part of the answer. Caesarea was a Gentile city. This is not a Jewish village or a Jewish town. As a Roman city, it was a place that the Roman governor was stationed. And of course, along with that, a Roman cohort. That is why Cornelius was there as a Roman centurion, and that's the second identifier we get of him. He is a Roman centurion. Luke identifies him as part of the Italian cohort. By God's providence, archaeology has actually uncovered an inscription that marks the existence of this very cohort. We know that they were in Palestine as late as 69 AD, and uh, this is some 25, 30 years earlier than that. A cohort, we're told, consisted of 600 Roman soldiers, and the centurions were the backbone of that cohort, and they were placed over 100 soldiers each. And so there, was, there were six centurions per cohort, already making Cornelius a leader, a special man. And since he was a Roman centurion, 
we can say this was a tough guy. This was a capable man. We might even put it this way. He was a man's man. He was no effeminate kind of a person. You know, we live in a society that seems not to want men to act like men. Have you noticed that? And so we need to affirm that masculinity is a good thing. I wish I had a little more of it right now. <laughs> men should act like men. Both nature and scripture teach that. You don't glorify God as a man when you start acting a little bit more like a female. Who came up with that idea? Who thought that was smart and educated? God invented masculinity, and he affirms masculinity in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6.13, it says, act like men, be strong. So if you're a burly kind of a guy out there, and you're wondering what you're doing in church, I want you to sit up and take notice that God uses men like you, because this was a guy like that. He's a very important guy. This was a rugged male. God chose to use this rugged male to advance his program, and that God can use you also. So keep listening. The third marker about Cornelius was he was a devout man, a devout man. And this is the part that really gets me excited. Devout means that his life was not oriented towards secular things. He didn't live for his own pleasure or just whatever happened to be, money and, you know, doing whatever he wanted to do on weekend. Devout means that his life was about who? About God, right? He was religious, and he did not apologize for being religious. He did not try to hide that from other people. That means that he was a worshiper of God. It goes on to say that he feared God. That's a clear statement that Cornelius was an Old Testament believer. He was a believer in the Old Testament sense. You say, wait a minute, this is the New Testament we're reading. Yes, but remember, we're in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is describing a transition time from people who are under the law, which is being under the Old Covenant, and making their way into the New Testament as they hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is a believer. This is a man who was saved. He believed what the Old Testament taught about God. He was an Old Testament believer. But listen to this. Cornelius was not a Jew. He was not a Jew. He was not a proselyte. He had not converted into the Jewish religion. He was a Gentile, a Roman, an uncircumcised Roman at that. But it, as a saved man under the Old Testament, he taught his entire household about the true God, Jehovah God, the God of Israel. He told all of his family, he told his servants who this God of Israel was. Because you're going to notice the entire household ends up believing as well. Now, to prove the genuineness of his faith, notice that he did more than talk the talk, as many people today do. They'll talk and talk about how they're Christians and they're religious, but they don't walk the what? They don't walk the walk, right? Well, it says he gave many alms to the Jewish people. He's a generous man, but he's being more than generous. He's directing his alms towards the Jewish nation, which means he loves the Jewish nation. He cared for their poor. And it also says that Cornelius prayed continuously. He was a prayer warrior. By the way, all godly men are prayer warriors. If a man is not devoted to prayer, he cannot be a godly man. So consider how rare Cornelius is to find a Roman centurion worshiping the Jewish God, caring for the poorest Jews, teaching their entire household about the God of Abraham and David, openly and unashamed of that God. Well, there weren't a lot of men like that back then. Not a lot of men like that today. And that's why we see God doing something extraordinary in Cornelius' life. Look at verses 3 through 6 now as we go on and read. About the ninth hour of the day... 
he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. We'll stop there. So it's the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. That's the usual time of prayer for the Jewish people. And Cornelius is praying, and he gets this startling supernatural vision. And the vision has three main features to it also. First, it is a vision of an angel. The angel just, poof, he just appears out of nowhere. It shocks and terrifies this strong and capable man. And that, by the way, is the usual effect that angels have in glory when they come and they shine and they appear to people suddenly out of another realm and they become visible to humans. That's kind of what humans are being do. We're shocked by that kind of a thing. So Cornelius does what we would have done. He says, what do you want? <laughs> what are you asking for? So second, he is told that God has heard his prayers. Now, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? God sends an angel and says, I heard your prayers. That's a beautiful thing, and it happened to him. Um, the angel just arrives. He says, not only has God heard your prayers, but here's the amazing thing. He's also seen your almsgiving, and all of that is being received by God as an offering. It's as if it's rising up before God, and God is very pleased with it. It's come before God, and he's pleased, and he's dispatched me to come and let you know this. Your prayers are going to be answered. This shows that God was pleased with Cornelius. And then third, the angel gives him a mission. I mean, this angel didn't waste any time at all. You wonder when angels appear, do they, you know, do they talk shop? Do they sit around and just chit-chat? You know, well, you got your answer here. They show up, they deliver the message, and then poof, they're gone, right? He gets right down to business, this angel. The reason the angel was dispatched, he tells him, this is what you're going to do, Cornelius. You have to dispatch some men on a mission to Joppa. That's about 30 miles away from where he was. And then the angel's instruction became very specific. You are to send there for a man named Simon, who's also named Peter, who's staying with another man named Simon, the tanner, whose house is by the sea. God was making sure by this specific instruction that there's no way this mission was going to be botched. This was way too important to be botched. In other words, it was God who was orchestrating and organizing everything. Indeed, I want you to see that because that's very important. Now, what a vision he got. What would you do if you were Cornelius? Well, look at Cornelius' response in verses 7 and 8. Let's read it. When the angel who was speaking to him, had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Wow. So the angel disappears as fast as he appeared. Cornelius himself wastes no time. He jumps into action. And he has three immediate responses. First, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and one devout soldier. I believe these must have been men that he most trusted, his personal attendants. This was uh, the most important mission he would ever send any man on. Someone from heaven has come to talk to you. You want to know exactly why? He hasn't really been told why yet. All of his curiosity is kind of stirred up. He chose the best. He chose the most reliable. 
He is poised and ready, and he's eager to obey the divine vision. And I'm sure he wants to know what this is all about. Second, Cornelius explained everything to them. He went over the whole vision with them. This is what the angel told me. Notice they don't doubt him. They believed him. He must have been thorough enough. And so the men, I, I, they probably had them repeat back to him. Tell me what I told you to do. Where are you going to go? Who are you looking for? What was the name? And then third, he sends them off to Joppa. He gets them going. No delays. No big meal to eat first. They're just gone. Already you can see this is moving fast and this is moving smoothly just the way God wanted it to move, right? Again, I'm going to say God set the whole thing up, right? The entire thing is set up by God. It's all about putting into motion God's sovereign plan. God took the initiative. God took care of the details. God made the communications. Why? Why did he do it? Because God cares about the Gentile people and his gospel going out to them. And I want you to stop and consider who is it that is in charge of his church? Who is it? Say it to me. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of his church. Do you believe that? Peter is being used here, right? Peter is not the head of the church. The Lord Jesus is in charge of his church. He doesn't need someone to be the head of his church on earth. He's always working and interacting in his church through his Holy Spirit. Do you see that? He's always orchestrating what happens. Men that God uses in leadership in church, they come and then they go. And then God does what? He raises up other leaders, right? He raises up other leaders because this church and every other local church does not belong to men, right? This is not my church. It's Christ's church. He raises a worker up and wants that worker to be faithful. And when that worker has served his purpose, he moves on. Changes. That doesn't mean that the church falls apart. Christ is always the head of his church. Do you see that? He is always in charge. He's always with his church. He's always working behind the scenes. And that's exciting for the church. It never has to fall apart because a human being falls apart, right? That never has to happen. The church of Jesus is supernatural. This is also exciting because even though the church does not know it yet, the entire church at that time should have been very excited about what was going on here. For nine chapters now in Acts, the church has been Jewish and Samaritan, half Jews. A few years have gone by since Jesus was crucified and risen, and yet no mission to the Gentiles has yet happened. But the gospel and the word of Christ was meant to spread to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. Because God has a program for the Gentiles as well. And that leads us to the second scene. The second scene. And that's in verses 9 through 16. And it is this. The vision to Peter. The vision to Peter. Let's look at verses 9 and following. On the next day, as they were... On their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and 
crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Peter. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. I mean, wow. And Peter doesn't really know what this is all about yet. Even at this point, he's still scratching his head. Now, to follow what this vision is about, what you're going to see is sort of a back and forth between Peter and God. It's going to go from Peter to God, Peter to God, and that's kind of the way to follow it with our outline. First, let's focus back in verse 9 on Peter. It says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Then the next day is a time marker that lets us know that God is coordinating the two sides simultaneously, right? They're, they're meant to fit together. What happened in Caesarea and what happened in Joppa are not coincidences. They're God working on both ends to make sure that they match. God put the other group in motion with an angel, and now God is putting Peter in motion with a vision. It's just beautiful. I point this out because often we don't know what is going on behind the scenes. We think like something terrible is happening or nothing is happening or God's doing something, but we don't know what he's doing. And here we know God is working. Whether we can see what God is doing or not, God is working. And so Peter goes up on the rooftop. That might seem a little strange in our culture. We don't go up on a rooftop to pray. But they had flat roofs in a lot of their homes in that culture, and there would be an outside staircase that would lead up to the roof, and it was used a lot. The roof actually was a great place to get away, get away from everybody else and have a time of prayer. Peter is a man of prayer also. Notice that both of these guys were men of prayer. Did you catch that? What am I going to preach to you next? <laughs> if you want God to use you, you have to be a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, right? You need to be dedicated to prayer. You need to find regular times and places, undisturbed, take it seriously, quit falling asleep on a couch or in bed, and take your prayer seriously if you want God to use you, right? So it notes it's about the sixth hour, that's noon. And uh, second, we look at God taking action, verse 10. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, Peter fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. God is giving this. God's now taking the action. So Peter's hungry. And the meal was being cooked downstairs. He could probably smell it. But as he's thinking about the food he wants, he falls into a trance. An ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy from that, but it is really a kind of a vision. In fact, it is equated with a vision in chapter 11 and verse 5 of Acts, but it's the kind of a vision that overtakes all of the senses that one has. If you saw someone in a trance and you were not 
in the trance, you might think this man is frozen up, is temporarily out of touch with reality. It was a supernatural gripping of a person, a supernatural vision imposed upon Peter. He didn't ask for the vision. God decided he would get it. And what did Peter see? First thing he saw was the sky, what? Opened up. Now, that's not just a little detail. That's important. In the Bible, when the sky is opened up, that indicates something significant. That means biblical revelation is about to occur. That means God is about to reveal something that is new. That's how it begins. When heaven is opened, it means revelation is pouring out of heaven. It means that God is revealing something, something new. God's revelations, by the way, to all of those that say the Bible is too hard to understand and you can't understand the book of Revelation and this and that, and they obscure what God has made clear. When God reveals something, that's not meant to be a riddle. It's not meant to be something shrouded in darkness. It's meant to be a true revealing. Yes, you may have to apply a little bit of thinking towards it, but it's not meant to be covering up something. It's meant to be revealing something. Revelation is always meant to be clear. We have a doctrine. We call it the perspicuity of Scripture. What does that mean? That we could read the Bible, and with a little bit of study of the customs and the languages, we can understand what it means. We can put the doctrines together and believe what God wanted us to believe. Why? Because it was a revealing, not a covering up. And so don't let anyone tell you the Bible can't be understood. In fact, this is what we would call progressive revelation. You might ask, what is that? Progressive revelation means that something is going to be revealed to man which was not revealed before, and it's going to make progress on previous revelation. In other words, God has spoken on something before, but God has not given all of the details we might want. And so now God's going to add to that previous revelation something more, and you're going to learn more details, more specificity, and it's going to be good. It is more detail. You know, the, uh, the message of the Bible is full. The message of the Bible is rich. It's cohesive and meaningful. But the building of the Bible actually took a long, long time. Did you know that? Because these messages that came from God through prophets and through apostles came over a very long period of time. As God unveiled his plan of the ages, he did it proportionately. He didn't pour it all out in one go. And he did it to various chosen people. He would choose someone he wanted to reveal through, and, and it was his choice, and he, he chose to talk through that person. And, and uh, often that person didn't know that he was going to be chosen, and he was chosen, and God used him, and then God just did what he wanted to do, right? And he just revealed things. And, and uh, maybe some of those people back then wished that they had more revealed to them, but that's all they got. They got X amount, and then, then that was that. And he did this to chosen people throughout human history. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 speaks to this, right? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, so he's giving little pieces of revelation and he's choosing different ways of revealing it, it goes on in Hebrews and says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, has spoken to us in his son. In other words, the speaking is done, gone, and over with. God chose not to reveal his full plan all at once. Progressive revelation had to come over time. Now, progressive revelation does not mean that the Old Testament had errors in it or was less true than the New Testament, and God had to kind of 
bring it up to date to fix the errors in the Old Testament. A lot of people think that way. That is not true. Progressive revelation does not mean that God, God went from telling lies to telling truth. How silly. It means that God went from telling us less information to telling us what? More information. Now, if you ever complain about the time in which you live, the good news for us is that we have everything that God has said through the ages, all put in one nicely bound book. <laughs> Do you know what the men and women of old would have done to get a hold of this book? They would have traveled barefoot for a thousand miles to get a quarter of a copy of what we have. And then some of you sit at home. Here's the guilt coming. You're offered all these opportunities to learn the Word of God, and you sleep in. And why do you do that? I don't get it. These, these people are, are studying. They're presenting you to build you up in the faith. And, well, you know the faith good enough, I guess. Think about that. Why are you not taking advantage of learning everything you can from the Word of God? I know you've heard some things many times before, but there's so much more to learn. And, guys, it's not just about learning new things. It's about mastering those things, right? I have to learn them over and over and over again. I'm studying these passages. I have some of these passages memorized. And I study them like I never saw that before. And it edifies me. It builds me up. You need it, okay? Enough of the guilt. Did you get the message? <laughs> I'm going to take a drink here. The good news is that we having lived so far into human history, have the full plan now revealed to us. In fact, even the apostles, when they're sitting around the Last Supper, Jesus said this to them, I have many more things to say to you. You're like, what a bummer. Why is it all getting cut so short? Why only three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry? Let's keep this thing going another 10 years if you've got many more things to say, right? But he didn't. What he said is, you cannot bear them now. <laughs> And then he goes on, he says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You're going to get it all now. It's all going to finally be poured out. And through the Holy Spirit, you apostles are going to write the last of the Bible and put the period on it, and it's going to be done. Once the Holy Spirit guided these apostles into all the New Testament truth, there is now no more progressive revelation. There's no need for it. Because it's all now been delivered. Listen to Jude verse 3. He said, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, now it's all been given. He could say that at the end of the Bible. Jude's second to the last book of the Bible is basically capping it off and saying by now the apostles have spoken and it's been once and, all, once and for all delivered. Think of the Christian faith as a packaged gift from God containing all the treasures of truth that the Spirit of truth has spoken to us. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He lived sinlessly. He suffered and died on a cross. He rose again. He sent his apostles to proclaim the gospel recorded in the scriptures, sealed its truth with their own blood, and now it is our possession delivered to us. No more to come. Jesus is God's final word to the world. There will be no other word. And if another guy comes along and says he has another word, you mark him off and write them off immediately. 
Jesus is the final word. He doesn't need any more improvements. He doesn't need anyone coming along and saying, here's the new revelation today. If you didn't know Jesus and you weren't one of his apostles, keep your mouth closed. We don't want to hear anything you have to say about Jesus except for what they said. Now, there's one more truth about progressive revelation. If you don't understand progressive revelation, you might think that the Bible contradicts itself. Because you'll read in one place earlier in the Bible, and it'll say something like, circumcise your sons on the eighth day. And then you'll read later, and it says you don't need to circumcise anymore. And you're like, oh, is the Bible contradicting itself? And the answer is no. There are changes in God's program over time. There are even changes with the animals. And that's what we're getting at here in this vision. There's a change that's about to be made with the animals. And by the way, it's not just about the animals. Think about this a little. Eating the so-called unclean meat and the clean meat, something's changing. Notice that with progressive revelation, what is about to be learned, a great sheet is lowered by four corners, and it has all kinds of animals in it, which means it's both clean and unclean. A voice comes out of heaven and gives Peter three instructions, right? Arise, kill, and eat. Well, hunters like to hear that. Well, that might have been fine if all of the animals were designated as clean, but for Peter, the Jew, this represented a problem for his Judaism. This would seem to be a command to Peter to sin because the law of God was very clear, no eating unclean meat. What was Peter to do? Ah, now we go back to Peter, right? Verse 14, but Peter said what? By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. What a response of a prophet back to God. God tells him, arise, kill, and eat. And he says, absolutely, no way. Sounds like Jonah. In fact, in the Greek, it's a double negative. By no means, Lord. He's recoiling at this command. He flat out says no to the divine command. One author says, Peter staunchly affirms his kosher commitment. <laughs> yeah. After all, it was God who said, don't eat the unclean animals. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 25. I'll read you just one of the portions of the law. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. You will not be like the Gentiles. You're mine, you see. And you can look at Leviticus 11.26 and there are other passages. Of course, you remember the days of Daniel. He's hauled off. He's supposed to eat the king's meat. It's unclean. And what does Daniel do? He says, we're not going to eat the unclean meat. We're going we're to show this king that we can eat the vegetables. We can keep the law of God. We'll be in good shape. And I imagine, you know, after the days of Daniel, if you're a Jewish kid growing up, you'd always say, like, I want to be like Daniel. I want to refuse to eat the meat. And uh, Peter had grown up on these stories, and this is who he was, right? This was ingrained, really, in every Jew, the way they lived. Well, let me ask you, what would you do if you received a vision and a revelation that contradicted the Bible you had? That's where, that's where Peter was. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians 1, even if an angel should come down from heaven and preach to you a gospel different than the one I preached to you, let him be eternally damned. Cursed, that's what it means. 
In other words, go with the Bible. Don't go with the supposed angel, right? Peter says, no way. Peter's not buying in. He had never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So now we go back to God. Verse 15, again. I mean, God's not going to back down to little Peter, right? (laughs) This thing ain't over yet. Verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Progressive revelation. Things are changing. God now says, I've cleansed it. It's no longer unclean. You know, the animals in this dispensation in which you and I live, they don't serve the purpose they once served. In the Old Testament, these laws erected a huge, huge barrier between Jew and Gentile. God wanted it that way. The Jews were not supposed to intermingle. They were to be a separate nation. Remember, they go in, they got their own land, right? And what are you going to do with all the foreign gods that they erected and all the idols? What are you supposed to do with all those things? What? Eliminate them all, right? And by the way, the people, they've reached the time of God's judgment. Wipe them all out. They're not even allowed to live here, right? You're going to be holy, you're going to live, you're going to be different than all the other nations, and I'm going to bless you higher than every other nation. And that is the way you'll have a testimony before the Lord. Not that way anymore, is it? What better way to separate one people from another people by telling them, here's the food you're allowed to eat, and here's the food you're not allowed to eat. By the way, they all eat that other kind of food. Now you can't even sit down at a table with them. You can't have them in your house. You're separate. There's no fellowship with these guys. But now we're in the New Testament. You are a new covenant believer. Don't get confused by those people that want to go back under the law, say they believe in Jesus, but they want to go back under the law. Don't be confused by any of that, right? We're New Testament believers. That giant wall, that barrier between Jew and Gentile, it's starting to crumble and fall at this point in Acts. And we're going to hear it go kaboom by the end of of chapter 11, end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11. And as I said, there's no quicker way either to separate the Gentiles or to bring the Gentiles back in than the food. Either you can eat it together or you can't eat together. And so God, right before he brings the Gentiles in, cleanses the food. And what he means is he's also cleansing the people who eat that food. Do you see that? So now we can eat with them. There's no longer any restrictions on any food. You may decide not to eat meat for dietary purposes. That's fine, but not for religious purposes. That's not fine. Romans 14, 13, Paul wrote, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's the end of the issue there. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. It's the false teachers who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's why we give thanks over our meal. Of course, if you knew the New Testament well, you would know that Jesus had already declared all foods clean, right? Back in Mark 7, verses 18 to 23, I'll read it for you. Do you not understand, Jesus said, that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and he goes on with a whole list of sin. Maybe Peter fell asleep that day when Jesus was instructing that lesson. Now, you need to understand that God was not simply talking about food being cleansed in this vision. God was talking about the Gentiles themselves being cleansed and being ready to be evangelized and join the Jews and the Samaritans in the kingdom of God. Dr. Daryl Bach insightfully writes this, the food laws underscore Israel's separation from the nations. By making unclean food clean, God is showing how table fellowship and acceptance of Gentiles are more easily accomplished in the new era. The vision symbolizes that what separated Jews from Gentiles is now removed. God uses the picture of unclean food now made clean to portray unclean Gentiles now made clean. What we are hearing here, as I said, is this giant barrier between Jew and Gentile starting to become knocked down. We're reading about how the cleansing of the Gentiles allows the gospel of Jesus to move out to the Gentiles. God had to first remove the barrier in dear Peter's mind. And we close with verse 16 for today. This happened three times. Now, why did he three times? Because this is tough on Peter, right? This happened not once and not twice, but three times. And then immediately the object was taken right back up into the sky, right? This was so important. It was given three times because it would so radically alter everything. God repeats it three times so Peter would get it. Three times so Peter would get it. And immediately the vision ends and the sheep is taken right back up where it came from. From heaven comes the message and back up into heaven so it goes. So the source of the revelation is clear to Peter. Peter must not treat any of the creatures he saw in the vision as unclean anymore. The boundaries for the new era are now dramatically enlarged. Peter is learning a lesson about the love of God, the generosity of God, the expansive plan of God to save a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, of which we are included here in our country. The heavens were opened up to move the church outward to the Gentiles. Our hearts, beloved, must match the heart of God. Our hearts must be big and generous in evangelism as God's heart is. Our hearts collectively as a church have to be such that we pray for and organize for and are willing to volunteer for opportunities to evangelize. Yes, many will say no, but some will say yes. We as a church must always be dedicated to the mission, whether it is evangelizing right here in Columbia or reaching out further and helping our other churches in the, in the mid-Atlantic region be strong, or whether it is we gratefully get behind other missionaries and support them. Our hearts need always to understand what God is doing. He wants this church to reach out and grow. He wants our other churches that are our sister churches that preach the gospel to be reaching out and grow. This is the heart of God. This is the plan of God for our time.
And may our hearts, may our hearts, beloved, be in tune with God's heart, for he is a loving and a generous and evangelizing God, and he wants to use us. Amen? Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us this lesson, and we're excited to continue learning it next week. And into Christmas Sunday, we're just so excited, Father, that you are a God whose love goes beyond ours. Would you teach us of your heart? Would you forgive us of our sins when we haven't opened our mouth when we should have? And would you raise up even more leaders to organize us here? Uh, Father, uh, give us leaders who will stay here and build us for the future, that we might fulfill our evangelism responsibilities in this greater area. For we know there are Gentiles and Jews who are out there right now who need to hear it. We pray it for the glory of Christ. Amen.